politics is not an area we spend much time on for rule breaker investing. Oh, I've done an election special here or there. I've talked about Dickens's blues and buffs. You know, the comic scene from his novel, The Pickwick Papers, in which a small English town is completely divided in the worst way between two political parties who won't speak to each other. Well, I'm glad for Dickens's satire and who can miss the parallels between then and now. But I've always loved business. Conscious capitalism is what I'm talking about, really for two reasons. First, all parties win. There's no play for power where someone wins and by design the other zero sum loses. Nope. The buyer and the seller in business transactions both participate willingly and when done properly, both win. You bought my house. You loved my house. It's now your house. Meantime, you paid me money. I can move. Buy a new house. We both win. And that's number one why I love business. The second reason is that in bringing us together, as opposed to dividing us apart, business creates real value. And it's, of course, business that rightly can take credit for so much of human progress, particularly over the last three centuries. Well, my guest this week, having been bitten by the conscious capitalism bug a few years back, took the framework and principles and asked, what if politics were done consciously? What would conscious campaigning look like? Well, with a career strategizing in politics himself, Matthew Dowd wrote an article a couple of years ago presenting 10 points that, were they adopted, would transform politics today in the same way that business is being transformed by conscious capitalism. And I loved it. And I wanted to have him on this podcast as we near another election season this year in the U.S. and talk it through with him, all 10 points, plus a surprise or two. Let's get ready to rethink our assumptions, break the rules of how politics could work today. You ready? This week, only on Rule Breaker Investing. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. The day was February 20th, 2019. I found an article. I mean, I, I guess I find articles every day, and I, I try to read them, well, at least the ones that I think might benefit me. I usually look past headlines. I think we all know Betteridge's Law by now. I won't go back over that, but if I can answer a headline quickly with Betteridge's Law, I skip that article usually. But no, this one was entitled 2020 Presidential Races Running a Conscious Campaign. Now, I'm a fan of conscious capitalism. I think anybody who's spent any time with The Motley Fool knows that we're practitioners and big fans and believers. So when I saw the idea of conscious campaigns, well, I bookmarked that. I read the article, I reread it, and I thought, you know, the author, Matthew Dowd, whom I didn't previously know, I would love for our team to get in touch with him at some point and talk that through. And I thought, you know, let's wait till an election season when we get closer, when people are feeling it a little bit more. That was 2019. I don't know, maybe it was busy that fall and then COVID. And then, and then I thought, you know, we're kind of coming out of things. I hope the world is getting back to the best parts of what it once was. And it's been transformed utterly so that we're all in a new place now. But why don't we have Matthew Dowd on today? And on September 7th, my team reached out to him and he said, yes, I'd love to do it. Let's do it in a month. And here we are, and without further ado, I'd like to introduce my new friend, Matthew Dowd. Matthew, welcome to Rule Breaker Investing. Great to be here, David. Thank you for having me. And thank you for taking the time. And, you know, Matthew, the bulk of this week's podcast is actually going to be looking at your article 
and it's 10 points for, for conscious campaigning. But I think before we get to that, I'd instead just love to start by hearing a little bit of your story. So where did you grow up and, and what were your top conclusions about the world by the time you'd reached 18? Uh, that's a great question. So I grew up, I was born in Detroit and one of 11 kids in an Irish Catholic family. Mm. My father worked for one of the big auto companies uh, there. My mom was a public school teacher in Detroit. And then after a certain number of kids couldn't do that anymore. And so she raised us, um, uh, grew up uh, there, uh, was there until I was 18, uh, until I went to college. I uh, grew up with a uh, first few jobs. I delivered the, my first job was delivering the Detroit News as an 11 year old <laughs> newsboy. When you used to have newsboys that put the canvas bag over the front of their bike and their back of their wheel and did that, learned a lot about actually capitalism because you back then you had to collect the money. The, the news, newsboys were responsible for collecting the money at the end of every month. And then whatever the difference was, you had to pay the newspaper and that you got to keep. Um, ah. in that, um, I always remember Christmas was the best time because that was actually when you got tips for delivery of newspapers. I was a caddy then I was a caddy at the local country club there, which I loved. I learned a lot about life actually as a caddy. So many stories if we ever want, we wanted to talk about that, <laughs> what I learned about caddying, um, in, uh, for people. Um, I grew up with it in a, a fa family of deep faith. Uh, my parents weren't involved in pop politics, but were always very interested in politics uh, and all very well read. Uh, reading was actually one of my favorite things to do. Uh, sort of it took me in different places of that. Um, I got hooked on politics when I was 12 years old during Watergate. Hmm. I remember being on family vacation up north in Michigan you're familiar a lot of people go up north and i remember we went on vacation in the midst of the hearings and instead of me going outside and doing all the things i was transfixed by the hearings and from that day on when i was 12 i was lucky enough to, to have discovered something that i loved which was politics and from then on in some way i've been involved in politics uh, in some way from the time i was 12 till today um didn't know what it would be but i knew i wanted to be in it in some way um and so that was my life. I have six brothers and four sisters mm. um, uh, in it. All if you, I've, if I said the name, you'd names. It is Mary, Patrick, Matthew, Michael, Paul, you know, <laughs> very Irish, Kelly, Marie, Catherine, Anne. <laughs> then he started reusing names: John, Patrick. And, uh, oh, very Irish um, uh, in that. And uh, so, yeah, that was my sort of upbringing. Um, uh, I, I would say one of the lessons I learned, I had always had a, like the one thing I remember my mom telling us is uh, that it's something that stuck with me, which was she constantly would repeat this, which is you're no better than anyone else and no one else is better than you, which was a frame of reference and has kept a frame of reference for me in all of the things I've done, keeping some humility and modesty about not being better than anyone else, but also not just because somebody holds a position or somebody has greater wealth or somebody has fame, they're no better than you. And, and that actually was a big uh, lesson in life. And the other thing was if like whatever job you're doing, whatever you're doing, be willing to do whatever the task is and uh, at hand 
Uh, and I've applied that in campaigns and everything I've done. If like, if I'm not willing to take out the trash when it needs to be taken out, that I shouldn't expect somebody else to do it. Mm. Servant leadership. And in, in my sort of an abiding sense of faith, which I'll say broadly is the idea of the believe in something bigger than self. And now religion and all that uses God or whatever that reference point is. But even if you don't believe in God, it can be a reference point for it's more than just about you, that there's something bigger involved in the universe. And so those were sort of some basics. I'm sure there was many. I treat other people as you want to be treated, just some basic values in that. Um, so yeah, those are some of the things that I've carried with me through life. Thank you for that. Very well illustrated. I want to say that my own grandfather was the 10th of 11 children born to an Irish family at the top of the state of New York, right on the border with Canada. He grew up playing baseball against Native American kids, but I can relate to 11s and being one of them. At least I remember my grandfather talking about that. I also want to say the Detroit Free Press was one of the first newspapers to syndicate the Motley Fool column, and I've always had fond thoughts about Detroit newspapers ever since. But Matthew, obviously the flame you mentioned of interest in politics uh, lit when you were 12. Understandably, I remember being a kid. I I guess I'm six years younger because I was six in 1972 or 73 is the listening to radio, listening to the Watergate trial on radio. My parents transfixed by that as they drove us to school. I'll remember that as well. But you've had a number of callings over the course of, of your career so far. Uh, including one special new chapter we're going to find out about later. But most prominently, looking at your past, I guess I'd think of you as a political strategist. Do you identify that way? I did for many number of years. Uh, I, I did. I've made some transitions in my life over the, like, I guess, 40 years or more of, of being some involvement in this. I sort of think that's what I'm best known as. I guess in many ways, I reached some of the heights in politics through that of, of strategy in that. Uh, I applied it to my time of an analysis when I've done ABC News and other now other uh, platforms that I've done. And if you don't mind me asking, would you would you brag briefly? Because I think you have a pretty, pretty <laughs> impressive career. I, I, I don't want so your humility. <laughs> I don't want it to be to be lost what you have achieved on, on our listeners. A storied career, I guess. Um, uh, so I was started as in Democratic politics, and I ran the last campaigns that of the of Democrats to win statewide in Texas. Uh, that was twenty something, more than twenty years ago. The mm-hmm. lieutenant governor and the governor I helped get elected, Democrat Ann Richards and Democrat Bob Bullock as lieutenant governor, and so. I, I had worked in various capacities in campaigns field and all that, but got to the point where I was running it, running those campaigns. And then it, I had started a business in the aftermath of that, uh, or in the midst of that, as I was doing it, a business on public relations and public affairs. And then a newly elected governor or a reelected governor, I got to know through my relationship with the Democratic Lieutenant Governor of Texas. His name was George W. Bush reached out and asked, said he was thinking about running for president, reached out and asked if I would help him. I had liked what he had done as uh, governor, which is work with both sides, try to work things out. And they did a lot of great things on education reform, on economic reform, on protection of natural resources between Republicans and Democrats. So I ventured off and that was, I put, put everything else in my life on hold and ventured off into that um, in the presidency, in the presidential race, we won the first time. And then in his 
re-election. I became his chief strategist for his re-election campaign in 2004 and did that, came back home um, after that. Then I did Arnold Schwarzenegger's election in 2006 as governor of California Hmm. and then had a fairly public break with then President Bush and the GOP in 2007 um, over a lot number of different issues, one of which was the conduct of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Another was how divided we had become uh, in this, and which was opposite of the reason rationale I gave. I remember at the time, and this is probably an interesting uh, part of the conversation, a number of people that I work with for Bush knew my dissatisfaction and they were said like we know you're upset we know you're upset but why can't just why don't you just go away and not just be quiet about it right just have your break and be quiet about it and i'm a big believer in the idea of karma in the world and i thought i was a public advocate and so the answer to that karmically or equitably was not to just go quietly i had to say something publicly which i did and i didn't mm-hmm. do it in a personal way i broke with him and it ended up on the front page of the New York Times uh, because I was the first one to break with then President Bush. And I thought I did it in a, in a compassionate way, but I did voice why I, what the problems I had. And then I went off on a long venture into, as an independent uh, for a lengthy period of time and then became associated with ABC News after that. One of the things I'm hearing from you, and comes out loud and clear, Matthew, is you've been a Democrat, you've been a Republican, you've been an independent. I guess I myself am independent, mainly because I don't like the party machines that, like Dickens's blues and buffs I mentioned earlier, seem so intent sometimes on dividing us for the sake of their own power. So I guess I like the independent in you most of all, but uh, apart from the actual parties themselves, just looking at the system for a sec, what do you think of the American political system today? I, I think it's fundamentally broken um, it, right now. I'm very worried about our democracy uh, in this moment. I, I think we've lost sight of the the, the experiences and the sacrifices and, and the uh, thread of our American story and w- w- why we came to be and who we are. I, I think that it's it's been coming incredibly tribalized. Uh, in this moment, it's hard to get any of the big things done that we want done. I worry that we no longer have a a country where the majority of the country feels they're listened to in this moment. But I'm incredibly, incredibly worried, especially in the aftermath of January 6th and the insurrection at the Capitol, in my view, and the response to that um, by what has become of one of the major legacy parties in my, as I say, the Republican Party at this time that doesn't seem at this moment to support small D democratic principles. I'm incredibly concerned. Democracy to me is a gift. It's not a given. And just because we've had it for 240 years doesn't mean it will continue. And it it requires sacrifice and it requires good people to step up in the moments they need to step up and fight for our our common story and our, our common set of beliefs. And I think many Americans are concerned in this moment, as I am, about our political system and its ability to function in a 21st century. This makes me think about one of the four big tenets of conscious capitalism as we start to get nearer to your article and the checklist, which we're going to go through. But one of the four big tenets of conscious capitalism, as I think you know, is higher purpose. 
purpose over profit in a in a business context. Now, without quite getting into your article yet, it seems to me that that conscious politicians should also serve a higher purpose. Let's call that let's call that purpose over power. So, if you agree, Matthew Dad, what do you think is the purpose of America? Oh, you know, I've obviously huge books written on that, but you know, to me, the fundamentals of America is, uh, you know, freedom, equality, and justice. I mean, if I was to boil it, it's a freedom, equality, and justice in all of the manifestations of those, uh, is sort of at the basis of it, whether it's freedom to pursue our own happiness, freedom to pursue the idea of building a business, freedom of opportunity to do what, you know, your talents allow in this. Um, and so it's, and then obviously, uh, the idea that we're all created equal, all men and women are are created equal in this and should be treated equally. And that it's a justice where justice is fair and rational, predictable um, in a system that applies the same rules to all people in all ways, no matter if you're the lowliest person with no money or the person with the most money in the, in this place, or no matter what color your skin is, no matter what it is, that to me are the sort of basis of it. I would add that our American system is premised on the idea of two that seem competing um, uh, pillars, but I think are incredibly important, which is individualism combined with the idea of the common good. And I think what happens often is people emphasize one over the other. And they, the, I think our founders had this idea that they were going to create a system where both individualism and the common good should and have to work together. And, and I think that's, and obviously democracy is practiced in, in people's votes and expanding of universal suffrage. We've, we, the, the whole idea of America is that we're constantly in a place of perfecting our union. We weren't perfect at the beginning. <laughs> we weren't perfect a hundred years ago. We weren't perfect 50 years ago. We weren't perfect five years ago, but they, the idea that we would move towards that perfection of a of equality, freedom, and justice done through the common good and individualism uh, is something that I think it was part of it. Um, and so that, to me, is the American story and and what I believe in. I actually believe that you know capitalism, in in practiced in a way that you say with purpose. Um, I actually think we're no longer in many ways practicing capitalism as a true form of capitalism uh, because it's, I think in many ways it's been so misapplied uh, today uh, that it, it, it becomes all about profit when capitalism, the really the theories of capitalism weren't fundamentally about profit. Uh, they were about building something and creating something uh, that then would benefit a, a, a community or a society. So I, I think the story of capitalism and the story of America are intertwined. Mm -hmm. And I, at this moment, and I'm sure you do, David, have concerns about both of those. Well, I sure do. I do want to strike an optimistic note, which uh, anybody who knows me knows this is typical of me, but I, I'm, I'm really happy to say that I've located enough businesses that I think do capitalism well and recommended their stocks to enough people and seen that they truly prosper over the only term that counts the long term, that I actually have a pretty deep and abiding belief that business is getting better every day. And a lot of the leadership that we're seeing and a lot of the solutions 
coming from the private sector, thinking about vaccines or just distribution of vaccines, et cetera. That's just one example. But I, I bet I'm not the only optimist in this conversation. And I suspect no, you're you, not. You, you rightly have a more grounded realism than maybe my pie in the sky optimism. But I, I absolutely appreciate that. I want to ask you one more question, then we're going to go to the checklist. It actually goes to a line that kind of opens up your your article from 2019, Matthew. You mentioned in your article about the state of our politics and campaigns today that, and I quote, I have realized more and more in the last 10 years that we must stop the ends justify the means approach to governance, politics, and life, and must instead replace it with a means justify the ends dynamic, end quote. Now, a lot has happened in two and a half years. Do you still feel the same way? And would you explain this some more? Sure. I, yeah, I feel even more so today. And so my whole idea is that if the means that, that if all you pursue is the end, whatever that happens to be, uh, whatever goal you have, it, without regard for the, for the meaningfulness of the means or the correctness of the means, you're willing to do means that actually could destroy uh, what your purpose is or what meaning you have in it. And so to me, which is why you see many times unethical behaviors because they're look at the end and that applies to politics, that applies to business or whatever. You bet. All of those things are happen to be. And so for me is if the means are correct, if you're doing it in the right way for the right reasons, to me, the ends take care of them, them themselves. And so uh, it, it, politics, once, once, if all you're concerned about is winning, then many people then just fall into the trap of doing whatever is necessary, no matter how unethical and at times I think illegal at times th- certain mm. things have been done to get to the win, as opposed to let's let's figure out what the end should. Should we be treating people well? Should we? How do we relate to one another? Should we be compassionate? Should we? Um, should we be inclusive? Like inclusivity and diversity is a perfect example to me. Those are means. And like, and if those are done well by organizations, the ends will be fine. The mm. ends will take care of themselves. The end result, as you know, full know, the most inclusive, diverse companies are actually probably the most successful companies. Yes. Uh, and <laughs> as opposed to forcing diversity and forcing inclusivity, all you have to do is say, hey, if you want to be a success, be inclusive and diverse. You'll be a success in it. That's a means. And uh, so that's what I mean by it is just, focusing on what do I like? How am I relating to another? How do I treat another? Do I look at everyone with dignity? All of those sorts of things. I wish we did that more in politics as opposed to looking at some end goal. Because in my view, the end will take care of itself if the means are are good. Well said. I agree. And thank you for that. I really, that connected well with me, which is why I wanted to underline that line uh, from your article. All right. Well, let's now get into the 10 points that could really transform campaigning and politics, conscious campaigning. And I want to say before we get here, Matthew, that truly if any one of these points were actually agreed to by both opposing candidates, even if the other nine weren't respected, boy, does that look like a better political environment to me. So each one of these strikes a blow for freedom and glory in my mind. If we could hit them all, that'd be even better. But I thought it'd be fun as we conclude each one, to ask you how actually doable is this one or not. So for each of the 10, let's go with a pie-in-the-sky rating, and there will be three ratings. And I'll just remind you, but it's it's doable, you know, quite doable. Like, this should be happening. That's number one. The second is, it's got a chance. And the third is, undoable. 
Probably okay. not going to happen Perfect. anytime soon. Perfect. All right, good. So let's get into it. Now, for each of these, you describe the Matthew as commitments. Like if a candidate, or especially both candidates, could commit to them, this would be a good and conscious thing. So I'm going to call them commitments throughout. Let's go to commitment number one. You wrote, let us treat the candidates we face in election contests, not as enemies, but as worthwhile opponents. Toss the Prince by Machiavelli and the Art of War by Sun Tzu, which many use as a guide to success and perhaps pick up the Sermon on the Mount or writings of the Dalai Lama as guiding texts. <laughs> so I, uh, I, that was something, obviously, from some things that I've thought about and read. I do think it's important. Um, it, you know, I was as you were reading it, I was thinking of, wow, there's, like, there's been some change in this moment uh, from what I wrote a few years ago. Um, for between what we're faced today, mm-hmm. but I actually do believe that there our, our political opponent, our political adversaries, are opponents. They shouldn't be enemies. Um, for sure, we shouldn't treat other supporters in that way. I think sometimes we devolve into the idea that anybody supports. Uh, we attribute bad behavior by a candidate to bad behavior by supporters mm-hmm. to bad behavior by voters, and I think that's a huge mistake. I've, I've often thought about this that like. You know, you can go and have a, a, an adversarial relationship with a candidate, but I think when you start dr- driving that down to voters, that's when it becomes exceedingly problematic. Who may be supporting a candidate for a variety of reasons, some of which we are all unaware of. But I do think we'd be much better, and instead of approaching this as a war uh, or you know a, to a death struggle, uh, as and and then that gets into what we've talked about before, which is ends justify the means in the course of this. And we did it as a, as a competition uh, of ideas. Um, then I think we're, we're, we're much more likely to treat this in a way that's not a to the death struggle. And this, this number one makes me think so much about the negative advertising that I am constantly seeing on my television, watching sports, which is basically what I watch on television these days. And it just strikes me that every single political ad that I see is negative and attacking. And, you know, sometimes I wonder, Matthew, you know, imagine if the private sector did that with its advertising. Imagine if we were just constantly being bombarded with slams on whatever the product is that they're competing against. It would be so exhausting. I find it exhausting to watch. I also find it lowering and demeaning, not just of me or you, but all of us that so many, perhaps all of the ads are negative. And I, it does remind me, a couple of years ago, I do a, a, a series on Rule Breaker Investing called Mental Tips, Tricks, and Life Hacks. And one of the ones I suggested, which was a trick, was to advertise for your political opponent. And I'm just curious if you've ever heard this done or seen this done, because it fits here with commitment number one. The idea would be that the first ad you launch for your campaign is propping, giving props to the person who's your opponent, showing their most honorable side and that you are honored to be competing a, a, against them in a battle of ideas. And boy, would that ever, to me, that would just jump off of the TV and maybe into the papers. Has that been tried before? And what do you think about that? Well, there's, a, I, and I don't know, I mean, just to, to tell you in the campaigns that I've been involved in and what I've done is there's, a, there's actually an interesting, to this end, an interesting matrix that we would use to go through which is uh, the matrix is like a four box matrix. And I don't know if you've heard of this, which is, is what do you say about your, what are you going to say about yourself? Right. 
is one box. What uh-huh. are you going to say about yourself in a campaign? What is your opponent going to say about you? What are you going to say about your opponent? And then the box on the far right is what is the opponent going to say about themselves, right? And you go through that exercise, which I think is very helpful because it allows you to prepare. It allows you to sort of put yourself in their place. It allows you to say, okay, if they're going to say this about me, what do I want to do? How am I going to figure this out? Great framework. And that actually goes exactly to that. And so it goes, it's just around, it goes around the whole part of the communication strategy. And I think when you do that, that you, you, you have an ability to create empathy in the midst of that, actually, without even consciously being aware of it. You create empathy in the midst of that, and it also actually makes you smarter. Mm. Thank you for sharing that. So to close number one here, pie in the sky rating, doable. It's got a chance, undoable. Let's treat candidates we face in election contests not as enemies, but as worthwhile opponents. How are you rating this one? Now, two. It's okay. uh, it's got a chance. Got two. a chance. All right. Speaking of two, let's go to commitment number two. And I quote, you wrote, end the practice of opposition research, which seeks to dig up personal scandals on others, which have nothing to do with how someone has led or might lead in office. Dirt diggers have no place in a conscious campaign. So this is, I think, um, uh, I think one that I very have been in my years have been very in tune with. I don't like it. I hate it. I think it's fine to talk about what somebody's done uh, if they've held office, decisions they've made, how they have affected citizens, uh, policies they passed, legislation they've done, that whole conversation, as long as it's factual and truthful, which is important. Um, but the idea of venturing off into somebody because there's some you know, divorce they had 50 years ago or 20 years ago or, or some issue with somebody's member of the family, I've, I've Every time somebody showed up in a campaign with, and usually you have these people that show up and they're like, well, I got some stuff on this. I would basically show them the door. I was like, I don't want to hear it. I don't care. Um, it, it is just, I think one voters react badly to it because like, what does that have to do with my life? Hmm. Uh, most voters are like, what, why, why do I care about what's going on in that? Plus it's just a, it, uh, that conversation I think should exist between that person and, and their, the almighty. Uh, or whatever. I, it's a part of the campaigns that I have never wanted to be involved in, would never be involved in, and I just think is completely, utterly counterproductive. I'm curious. This is not my world. This is a world that you've studied, you've been part of. It sounds like you're not a fan of it either, nor would I be. Is the opposition research industry booming? Is that a stock we've wanted to own here over the last 25 years because it's just shot up lower left to upper right? I would have said you want you would have want to buy it 25 years ago, uh, but I wouldn't buy it today uh-huh. um, because I think that it was a time where it was it was new or people presented as as new information that everybody then thought they had to have. And the interesting thing about opposition research firms is they made a living both of about researching your opponent and researching the candidate themselves. <laughs> um, and so it'd be like, oh, if we did this on your opponent, you better be aware of all your problems. And so they'd have like a twofer, you know, they get paid for the research on the other person and research on you. I think it's less and less part of campaigns. I know it still exists. Um, uh, and, and we can discuss this at the end. I know it still exists. Um, uh, but I wouldn't buy today on it. I think it's, uh, it's, it's priced out of favor today. All right. So committing to end the practice of opposition research, pie in the sky rating, doable It's got a chance, undoable. Number one, doable. I think it's very doable. 
I'm really interested to hear you saying that maybe it's even peaked, and that kind of makes sense to me because in this age of social media where somebody took a picture of you 22 years ago or even two years ago, which would be presented 15 years from now as you come of age, Facebook, you did or said or looked like this crazy thing. I think people are kind of getting beyond that. I sure hope. I think we are. So I'm delighted to hear that maybe it's not a stock we'd be buying today, which does fit with your doable rating. All right, let's move on to commitment number three. You wrote, end the tactics of personal insult, name-calling, and berating or demeaning others. If we wouldn't want to see words and actions our sons or daughters use in elementary school, then we shouldn't allow them in political campaigns. So this goes to the whole idea that I actually think the bar has been set so low on so many different things that we just <laughs> accept behavior in our politics and in our politicians that we would not allow in, you know, our six-year-old. Or Isn't our it true? Or whatever. And we've, and now the bar, oh, it's like, that's the bar. And so we shouldn't even have an expectation anymore that, that we expect that. And this actually goes to a fundamental thing about basic values, like the idea of integrity and honesty and compassion and all that, like basic values that like we were raised on, or we raise our own children on that. We now don't even think like, like, like we have an expectation of those basic human values that we have anymore. And that's something I've, I've been a big advocate of. It was like, what happens if we just forget about all of the issues for a minute and just say, we want leaders with basic human values and the idea that we would want somebody like that old book, like what you, everything you knew, you learned in everything you know, you learned in <laughs> kindergarten. Go back to just those basic things and say, why don't we just start with there and start like our expectation there. And then we can have a conversation about issues. So to me, it's just a basic thing uh, that we should expect, but the bar, as I said, has been set so low today that we don't even expect the basic thing anymore. Yeah, and I'm going to call this one the Mr. Rogers commitment because, boy, a lot of us are Fred Rogers fans. We interviewed him. I played that before on Rule Breaker Investing when he was still living, of course, and uh, the movies that came out about Mr. Rogers, the the real one and the Tom Hanks one, both excellent. Just such American reminders that I think one of our nation's core values is kindness which surprises people, especially in the face of personal insult, name-calling, berating, or demeaning others, which, by the way, I don't see very much in the private sector or the ads, but boy, does it seem to be right now the tail wagging the entire dog of politics in America. And I do believe we've hit new lows, and yet I feel like we're going to be bouncing off those lows like some of the stocks that we hope to invest in. I'm obviously not from this field, but I'm an observer, you know, a liver of life, and And one of my pet peeves, I'll just share it with you here, Matthew, let's get on to number four shortly, but it's the kumbaya speech. That's what I call it. It's the I won, and now let's all come together and heal speech that so stereotypically seems to end many an election. You've got the candidate saying, um, let's all come together. I mean, they've just beaten each other bloody, and now you're saying, oh, now it's, it's time to heal. It's always struck me as a little hypocritical and not something that I feel like we're ready to heal or that that they are either. So the I won and now let's all come together and heal speech. Have you seen those before? (laughs) Yeah, I've seen them before. And I actually believe in the idea of healing and coming together and all of that. But I think what you're saying, what what I think you're alluding to is is that if your behavior up until that speech was not authentic (laughs) to that speech, then it becomes complete meaningless BS, right? It, that's just, it's, and so I believe in that, but I mm. actually, in order to make that work, you've had to conduct yourself in a manner 
that when you arrive at that point, it's authentic to people. And so in order for it to work, you have had to have treated people along the way in a way that when you give that speech, it resonates as true. Very well put and much more eloquently than I was stumbling through to convey, but sometimes I get emotional about my pet peeves. <laughs> okay. <laughs> pie, in the okay. Sky, pie in the sky rating for ending the tactics of personal insult, name calling, and berating. Doable, it's got a chance, or undoable in today's politics? It's somewhere between two and three. It's possible and undoable, somewhere between two and three. Mm, yeah. All right. Moving on to number four. Let us practice compassion for other candidates that we face as well as their campaigns. Each person in a campaign should personally get to know other people who work in an opposing campaign. Keep in mind, I grew up in Washington, D.C., so I read this with particular interest. You wrote, I've discovered it's much easier to be compassionate to others if we get to know them. And when other campaigns lose, let us reach out to those folks and see how they are, and help them recover, kind of to the point that we just spoke about. So let us practice compassion for other candidates, Matthew. So this is like, and I've, I've experienced this in the course of all the campaigns I've been on, and I've made actually a lot of friends and a lot of relationships between people that worked on the opposite side of me because I reached out and talked to them and built a bond of, based on humanness. And these are human beings on the other side with their same dreams and hopes and ambitions and all of the things just like are on your side. You may disagree them at times in a campaign. And there may be moments that you feel like they've gone way off the, the deep end, which makes it it's a struggle, obviously, as it is in our own lives as mm. things happen and, and all of that, especially well if you believe somebody's broken up trust or, or has been dishonest. It, it's a difficult part. But I think you can understand it more. I mean, I made a lot of tons of friends that I have today when I was working for George W. Bush against Al Gore and working George W. Bush against John Kerry, I made a lot of friends in the other uh, opposite camp of this. And we've stayed friends till today. And we've ended up um, doing things together in, you know, public life or on television or at seminars and or, or, or whatever. And I think it's just, it's just a, it's just a, just a, assuming some level of humanity and what somebody goes through, especially when somebody loses and reaches out, they're going to have a tough time. They don't know where they're going to go what's going to happen to them, you know, who, who's thinking about them. It, it's a loss of self-esteem. It's, it's a very tough moment. And I think if we reached out and just were compassionate and empathetic in the midst of it, it's the right thing to do. But I actually think it's like a, it's for your own long-term interest. It's a good thing to do. I've told my, one of the lessons I've told my own kids, especially my three adult boys, uh, is, is that you're going to cross over more bridges you crossed over before than you're going to cross new bridges in your life. Huh. And that is so true of people you meet in your life, that, that, that you have no idea that that person that you're in the midst of a battle with five years or 10 years from now, maybe across the table from you or at the same side of the table, you on something else. And if you didn't weren't compassionate or mistreated them, it makes it much trouble in the new moment to do that. And so people ought to remember you may be in the midst of a really stiff political battle, but these are people that could one day be allies in some other form at some other time. You know, it makes me think of, I haven't actually read the book, I'm embarrassed to say, but many a time have I heard it mentioned Doris Kearns Goodwin's book, Team of Rivals, and what Abraham Lincoln did as the first elected re Republican president in history, and how he stocked his cabinet with people who disagreed with him. Let us practice compassion for other candidates we face as well as their campaigns, get to know each other. 
you know, one of the principles of conscious capitalism is win-win-win, that you can create a win for all of your stakeholders. And I'm interested, Matthew, would it be a level up for, for politics today? Would it make it more conscious if a campaign thought of its adversary as one of its stakeholders and acted accordingly? Yeah, I, it would be, but I think that would be the, the the problem is is obviously there's a winner and a loser, right? And that is declared by uh, a, a massive population or, of either in a district, a state, or a country, and it, it 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 is hard to get out of the win loss when there is a loss and there is a and it, it is a winner in the midst of that, um, and then you move on and one it goes away and one person holds office in mm-hmm. that. I think that I think that thinking about people, it's an interesting thing as you raise it, thinking about people as part of the process, as part of the effort, uh, I think would give more meaning to it uh, and more ability to sort of, as we went back to a previous point of healing in that, if you, you saw them as, I mean, it's, as I think about this, it's like looking at your setbacks as opportunities, right? It's the same thing. It's a sort of, in many ways, the same way is what, we always welcome, we always think of good things that happen to our life as gifts. And we always think as bad things as not, but if, and I've thought about this as bad things that have happened to me, if I looked at them as gifts, as gifts to me, like this is teaching me something, this is showing me something. So I should see this bad thing that has occurred yep. as a gift that I think if we thought about our opponent as a gift in this, we would treat it differently. Very positively intelligent. And, and I would add that, you know, there is something to be said, and this especially works for me as an investor and thinking about the stock market, of playing the long game. And if you're playing the long game in life, and you know this better than any of us based on the life that you've led within politics, each party is going to win multiple times over the course of any meaningful period of time. So it really doesn't make sense to vilify them. Or I love the bridges that you've spoken of building and then teaching that to your kids as well. So if you're really playing the long game, you recognize that we're all Americans and some of us are going to win. I think of basketball. I'm a big North Carolina Tar Heel fan. That's my alma mater. Duke is going to win some of the time. And it's in part a great rivalry because you are both great and you honor each other. And so I think that that long game mentality can help. But, you know, the win-win-win in politics, probably by its nature, as you said, it is kind of a win-lose. There's a zero-sum aspect to elections, which just isn't true of business, which is, I guess, in part why I prefer business. But what is your pie-in-the-sky rating for practicing compassion for other candidates and people in their campaign? Doable? It's got a chance. Undoable? Uh, I I think it's doable. Um, I think it's doable. I think in this moment, it's harder in this moment um, because of how the lines have been drawn in this moment where I think democracy is at risk. But I think it's very doable. Today, it, I, I would say it's harder, but it's doable. Well, something that you've reminded me of, I'm just kind of paraphrasing one of the lines I love. We, we can't control what happens, but we can control how we react yeah. to what happens. And so you've just described win or lose. Uh, you can raise everybody up around you based on how you react to that. And I, of course, love that things that go wrong are gifts and opportunities. Let's go to number five. And there's an interesting turn at this point in the article. It'll become evident as I share point number five. But Matthew, you wrote, let us put together organizations that pay full-time employees a living wage. Ensure a ratio where the highest paid employee doesn't make more than 20 or 30 times more than the lowest paid employee. Provide health insurance and commit to running an organization that is both diverse 
and inclusive and respects the environment by having a simpler carbon footprint. So a really interesting turn here with commitment number five. I hear it most of all as being about the employee stakeholders. So we're back to kind of creating wins for all your stakeholders. I have to say, uh, rarely do I hear about the employees within political campaigns, but I know a few. For example, my friend Alan here at The Motley Fool, been with us seven or eight years. Alan came from a job answering phones for one of the parties right here in Washington, D.C., and was completely burned out of that experience, having gone in with the best of intentions and the highest of ideals. And I have to say, Alan's been much more at home with the fool's culture, which feels nurturing and thinking about employee first a lot of the time. And it seems like, again, I'm not part of the party machines, but it seems like that's not happening uh, with the big parties today. Do you agree? Uh, yeah, and I think it. I think it happens in some parts and some organizations who basically practice, you know, what they want. Like, I mean, my view, you ought to be running a campaign the same way you were going to govern, right? And so, you idea that you're going to run a campaign differently, and then all of a sudden govern in much a much different fashion. Huh. How the campaign functions should be a reflection of how you're going to govern. And I think too oftentimes we take advantage or take for granted people. And then it's like, I want to do this because I want to get elected and do great things for everybody. And then basically they're running an organization that the practice of the organization isn't actually doing that. Um, and, and we've seen some of that hypocrisy, in my view, highlighted where people have advocated for, you know, universal health care. And then you discover, you know, employees in their campaign aren't, <laughs> aren't don't have it available to them or they advocate for a you know a living wage when they're going to get elected, and then you discover they're not paying a living wage to their mm. employees in this. And so, to me, it's an evidence it's evidence of hypocrisy at times in this. I learned a lot of this lesson about employees uh, when I was doing a business. One of our clients was Southwest Airlines, and Herb Kelleher uh, was the CEO of Southwest Air, legendary, as you know, legendary. Guy. Indeed. And one of the things he constantly talked about was. If you treat your employees well, they're going to treat the customers well. And his idea was the circles, you had a concentric circle idea that like, instead of jumping over your employees to the customer, that if your employees are happy, and he had this whole idea of building a happy, joyful organization, that if that existed, then the customers would have their experience, the customer experience would be good. If the employees felt good and felt part of an organization that gave joy and meaning and purpose and, and reward. And so I learned a lot of that watching him and a large airline build an organization. And it gets it for that time when Herb, and I haven't looked at Southwest Airlines recently, I haven't been in, related to it, but had some of the highest customer ratings because it had some of the high employee ratings. And it's been one of the truly great stocks to have held for the last 35 years. It's had its ups and downs. And in recent years, of course, Herb is no longer with us. But boy, you got to sit at the feet of a master right there. Somebody who truly understood how you treat people says so much about who you are and where your organization or the world is headed. So I really appreciate that pie in the sky rating for treating full-time employees within these campaigns uh, in the way we'd wish to be treated. Doable, it's got a chance, undoable. I think it's very doable because I think that in the days of people's ability to voice their concerns and social media and all of that and, 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 and showing hypocrisy, I think it becomes harder and harder to have a diversion between how you're running your campaign and what you're saying is how you want to govern. I, I, so I think it's very doable. Wonderful. 
Well, that's half of them, and I'm going to speed us up a little bit because we've got a little bit more to cover just after these. So let's move quicker through these. Again, I've had so much fun talking about each of them. I don't want to give it short shrift, but I will keep us moving. Number six, let us each morning gather campaign folks together before the chaos of the day begins and have a meditation or centering prayer session of 30 minutes so that everyone can set their compassionate intention for the day ahead. Matthew, how did this one come to you? Higher purpose? <laughs> um, it's great. So I practice this. I started this, my own practice of this about 14 years ago because I realized it was I needed my own internal practice to face the world and face life. Uh, so every morning for 45 minutes or an hour, I do this. I do it before I shower. Um, I, in its different ways I do it, I could read quotes, a passage in a book, something from the Bible. It, it depends. It all depends on what strikes me, a quote from somebody that I discover some moment in American history or whatever it happens to be. Mm. And it centers me for the day. I now, if when I travel, I have to do it when I travel. I, I tell people when they ask me about the practice, I tell people you need to do it before you get in the shower. You need to do it when you wake up because once you're, I don't know about you, but once you're in the shower, you're already planning your day. You're already in the mode. You get in the shower and in the shower, you're like, okay, I got this. I got a meeting. I got this. I got a this. And that you're already in the day. So you, if you, you've lost yourself by then. So I say you do it before it starts. It centers you. You can reassess your values again, of what you want to do, how you want to confront people in the day. It gives you a greater degree of patience, uh, in my view, throughout the day. And it just centers you on your purpose. What really are you doing instead of just the sort of practical application of what you're, you have to function through the day? It yep. centers you. And you're going to lose your place in the course of the day, but at least you have a center to return to. And I think we're going to agree together this one's doable, right? How could this not be doable? It's just it, it represents a, a commitment, which is what each of these is really, but one that feels like one you and I can make in some cases are already doing. I will point out about this one that you've described as sort of a personal experience, but what you're putting out here with number six is more of a collective thing, which kind of interested me in that regard. There's a dynamic of gathering folks together, which I found interesting. Do you want to say something quick about that or shall we keep moving? No, I, I think that's very true. I, and I actually started a group here. And it's funny, I started a group here a few years ago in the local you know, interdenominational church where every Wednesday morning I gathered a group to do this before their day started at eight o'clock in the morning. Um, and they, it's, they all loved it and considered it incredibly helpful. Wow. And uh, to them, as they just came in before they started selling real estate or going to the restaurant they owned or whatever it was. And so, yeah, I think it's very doable. Individually, it's incredibly important, but collectively, I think it can change. I think it can change a community. Very cool. Number seven, let us make a commitment to running campaigns with integrity where deception, dishonesty, and disingenuousness is abandoned, and discussions rely on facts and the truth in all elements of communications. Transparency and openness with the media should be practiced as much as possible and be the default position when dealing with the press. Uh, so to, to me, this is something that's incredibly important, especially in this moment we're in today, where there's a real question about truth and real question about honesty and real question about facts and science uh, in the course of this. And I, I, I would like to believe that campaigns can do this. And I actually think they can be very successful in this. If you're honest, I mean, the old saying is, is if you tell the truth, you don't have to have a good memory. Um, if you tell the truth, you don't have to worry about dealing with the press. 
I mean, people that have most worries about anxiety about dealing with the press, they ought to look in the mirror ah. because the reason why they're having a huge amount of anxieties or dealing with the press is they, they believe that they may have not been uh, carrying their decisions with integrity because now they're going to get questioned about them. Hmm. Um, so yeah, I think it's a, it's incredibly important a way to live life, but it's also incredibly important for any organization, especially politically. Now, most of your listeners, I think are like, Oh my God, right. Politics, honesty, truth, yeah, whatever. It's not going to happen. I, I believe it's actually the demand for it is even people are more hungry for it today. Uh, so yeah, I think, I, I, I think it's very possible. Well said, and so we're going to call that one doable. Clearly, that's what you're conveying, Matthew. You know, as somebody who loves branding, uh, I often think, you know, the way to get your brand to stand out is to do something different than all the rest. Who's acting differently? I think the movie Dave, which I still remember, I'm guessing at some point you must have seen the movie Dave. Dave is actually a good guy telling the truth. I love that movie. So you yeah. love that movie, right? So, so maybe we could call this one the Dave principle. We had Mr. Rogers earlier. I'm feeling some channeling of Dave going on with this one. And it does feel not just doable. It actually feels like it could be incredibly advantageous if authentically and actively done. Oh, absolutely. And to think of what John McCain, when his straight talk expressed, how, and he basically was like, anybody come on, let's talk, let's have this, I'll answer any questions or whatever. It took off in, in, in how he was doing that in, in, in a way that was very authentic to him. Yeah, I think it's not only it's not only necessary. I actually think it could be highly successful. I agree, and I look forward to seeing more of that. Number eight, let us attempt to refrain from questioning the intentions of others unless evidence is clear of something nefarious and debate contrasting visions and policies at a higher level, starting with the presumption that the opposing candidate is well-intentioned will raise the standard of discourse throughout. I'm going to say amen to that. I'll be curious what you think the pie in the sky rating is for this one. But Matthew, thoughts on number eight? Um, I, I think this is really important. I mean, and, and I always think about life lessons is that the, the, the lessons we learn in the smallest circles are also the lessons that actually are completely applicable to the larger circles. So the, this is actually something um, that per, in a personal level and personal relationships, we should practice, right? Don't make an assumption about what somebody's intention is before you actually have a conversation or gather information. I think the same is true in politics. Now you may come to a conclusion through evidence and through facts that their intention or their intention or what they're doing is nefarious. It should be pointed out. I don't definitely agree. It should be pointed out if that's the case, but we should always start. I always operate from a position of i trust the person until shown otherwise you mean um, innocent until proven guilty is that what and, i'm hearing yeah and trust until proven untrustworthy sure right? trust until proven untrustworthy and i now does that like you and me do do all of a sudden we're surprised by some people that may do something that like oh wow i didn't see that coming i'd rather be a person that walks through life that says i didn't see that coming yeah. and look at life through such a dark lens that you assume everybody's bad Yep. And, and I'm going to say I'm that person, and I, I bet you are too. I bet a lot of people hearing us right now are. You know, one of the great lines I've heard about human psychology is that we tend to judge ourselves by our intentions and <laughs> others by their results. And so I've often said on Rule Breaker so Investing in the past that one of the best ways you can become more awesome as a human being, whatever you're calling, is to reverse that, is to judge yourself by your results and others by their intentions. So whether or not that's going to happen in a political context, at an individual level, every one of us can be 
more awesome and level up if we become more self-aware of that dynamic. The other thing I'll add on that is, so I completely agree with what you just said, but I also think there's another corollary to that, which is oftentimes the things that most upset up in another, most upset us in another person are something we need to work on ourselves. Mm, yeah. They actually are, should be an insight, like, why am I getting so upset about this? Wow, it's because I have something I need to work on within myself. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever read the book Positive Intelligence by Shirzad Shamin, but if you've not, you're channeling a fair amount of it in this discussion today. <laughs> I haven't read, but I will. Oh, it's great. All right. Before we move on to number nine, for number eight, Matthew Dowd, doable, it's got a chance, not doable. Uh, got a chance. Got a chance. All right. Number nine, if a campaign attacks an opponent in a sexist, racist, or mean-spirited manner, other campaigns should stand together and defend that candidate. The mantra should be that a personal destructive attack on one should be viewed as an attack on all. Give support, even if you believe the attack may hurt your opponent and help you. Yeah, I just think this is just, a, a, again, another human quality of like, how do we, are we embracing this as our own individual pursuit or are we embracing it as a pursuit that is supposed to be for to build up our country or build up our community? And if it's the latter of building up country and building up community, then we should defend others in a place of injustice or in a place of lack of fairness because it really should not be about solely about ourselves and our own uh, pursuit. It should be about uh, how, do we, how are we going to improve the, the, the situation in total at hand? And so to me, it is, it's not only about, I'm going to protect myself and defend myself. It's just the, you know, it's, it's what you would do if you were going down the street and somebody was mistreating somebody else, would you just walk on by because it has nothing to do with you? Or would you defend them? Because I, I mean, there's obviously a famous quote, one, an act of injustice against one is an act of injustice against all. And I think campaigns ought to think about it that way. This one feels particularly au courant. I mean, I know you, you obviously wrote the article in 2019, how much has happened around sexism, racism, and mean spirit in the last two and a half years. So I feel like you were really kind of seeing ahead, and I don't know whether campaigns have gotten any better at this, but I do think as a society, we're, we're much more attuned to this. I'm not going to say we're all doing it right yet, but there is a lot more awareness about these forces than I think was being acknowledged even just a couple of years ago. Matthew, pie in the sky rating for this one, number nine, campaign attacks somebody based on sexism, racism, et cetera. The likelihood other campaigns will stand together and even if it's not in their own best interest, defend that candidate. Doable, got a chance, undoable. Got a chance. I mean, I'm somewhere between got a chance and doable. I think it's more, I would have given it a between a two and three years ago, to a few years ago. Now it's between a two and a one today. Mm. Excellent. All right. Number 10. And it uses a word that I often hear in and around conscious capitalism, which is held, by the way, in Texas, the Conscious Capitalism CEO Summit every year in October. I just got back a couple of weeks ago. And it was probably the first group of people more than a decade ago who I started hearing talk about the word love in the context of business, which to a lot of people raised on kind of 20th century classic capitalism, love in the workplace, like I would love my employee or I would love our customers, Herb Kelleher, ticker symbol LUV for Southwest <laughs> Airlines. So this has been in conscious circles for quite a long time. I don't often hear about this in politics or campaigning, but here's number 10, according to you, Matthew, quote, let us lead with love and not with hate. While anger could help energize folks to rise up, let's have campaigns which seek peace 
and calm instead of war. Let's encourage people to focus and to calm down and access their better angels instead of stirring people up and appealing to the worst aspects of human nature. So I think this this one was written before the moment we're in right now in the last few years, obviously, uh, where this has become a huge part of it, where that hate has become a weapon, weaponized in, in, a, in a way that I didn't think was going to happen. So sad. It was used. And then obviously fear is used to gets to hate, that gets to anger. And then it keeps me moving and moving and moving past that. Um, yeah, I think, again, this is just one of those things that like there, you can make an argument against somebody. Um, and I hardly ever uh, use the word hate. Um, I just think it's, uh, it, 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 it's uh, such a harsh word. I think love, using the word love, I think the reason why it's, it, it seems unusual and difficult is, is it's, it's associated with softness and, or, uh, you know, romance as opposed to embracing and a, a collectiveness of community that sometimes love, which to me is one of the most powerful, strongest words one can use. It's mm. often seen in politics as weakness. Um, and I think we have to turn that around in the idea that showing love, caring, compassion, kindness, which is all related to it, is actually a strength and not a weakness. Very well said. Thank you. Doability of number 10, let us lead with love and not with hate. Doable, it's got a chance, undoable today. So I'm a believer that love, I have faith in that love will conquer hate. Love always conquers hate. Maybe not in the short term in the, in the one quarter balance sheet, but maybe over the long haul it will. Um, so I would again, put that between two and one doable and it's got a chance. Hmm. All right. Well, Matthew, dad, thank you for going through the 10 points, the 10 commitments you spoke to two and a half years ago in an article that some random fool on the internet read, remembered and really thought, you know, increasingly we should talk about this. And I'm so glad that you came on the podcast and, and did. And I've been enlightened by what you've said. And I've been inspired by what you said. And as I said at the top, if any single one of these was really taken up and owned collectively by a campaign, that is by all participants on both sides, if there are two sides of a campaign, boy, does that help their community? Does that help our world? So tired of the negative, leading with hate, the questioning, all of this. You know, it's funny, Matthew, you and I are both dads. You know, we try to do these 10 things in our lives. As you said earlier, we teach our kids these things in kindergarten. We reward or punish our kids based on their behaviors around these things somehow. And we would never tolerate this in the world of business in lots of ways. Never. It wouldn't work. You wouldn't actually compete successfully against Southwest Airlines if you employed a lot of what's happening in the political world today, day to day. And yet there's one area where it seems to work or have worked, especially in recent years. And I do have a deep faith that that will not be the case in an increasingly conscious society 10, 25 years from now. And I think it's kind of starting right here, right now in some ways. I want to quote you at the end of your article because this is the, the Mojus. You nailed it with this. You write at the end of the article, I believe that if campaigns are run in this fashion, and I'm quoting, it's much more likely that leaders once elected will govern in a manner more in alignment with justice, integrity, and the common good, end quote. And so we see that how you campaign, you were sounding this note a little bit earlier, probably in a lot of ways shows us how you're going to lead 
And so better campaigning very likely is better leadership. And boy, does the public sector in particular starve for that today. And I'm not talking about any given party. I am a native of Washington, D.C. I've seen the federal government over the years, but all of us, wherever we are, and many of our listeners, of course, are in other places in the world where they probably dream of having some of the things we take for granted in our country. So, But I'm, I'm really glad you concluded that way. I think that's, that's important. Thank you. All right. Well, as we near the end, I want to mention ahead of time, of course, next week on Rule Breaker Investing is the October mailbag. We started with mental tips, tricks, and life hacks to start this month. And I did nine foolish truths I hold to be self-evident last week, something I only do once every two years. And then, of course, conscious politics this week with Matthew. Dad, I would love to hear what you thought of this month's podcasts. RBI at fool.com is the email address. We'll be taping our mailbag a little early. So ideally, you're emailing us by Friday if you're hoping to have your thoughts included on next week's mailbag. Again, our email address, rbi at fool.com. Well, okay, Matthew. Now, my team of Sierra Baldwin and Maggie Dorn, that's our booking team. Sierra reached out to you to book this interview on September 7th. I was checking Slack, our corporate Slack. I was like, yeah. I said, book Matthew September 7th. You said yes. I was delighted when you did. Although you said in a month or so, so in the meantime, maybe I see why you were busy. Now, my Texan fools and my highly politically aware listeners probably already know this, but I didn't until yesterday. And I wrote you apologizing that my jester-becapped head is often buried in the sand when it comes to politics and races. But in between our booking you on September 7th and today as we record our interview, Tuesday, October 19th, you announced that you yourself, Matthew Dowd, are running for Lieutenant Governor of Texas. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it happened. I announced on September 29th, uh, the campaign. It's something I've uh, bounced around for me uh, as I've watched this year unfold. I was trying to ask myself in the midst of all of what's going on in politics and things that have happened both nationally and in Texas, which I have completely disagreed with, and I actually think aren't in the best interest of the majority of Texans. I understood, the as I've debated this, the sacrifice it would be. My life was good and is good. I sit on the in the hill country on the Blanco River, and my, my kids are great, and I spend time with them. I've been blessed in my life uh, that I don't have to worry about a lot of things. Life was good, but I actually started asking myself, you got to be, you got to do more. And if you allow just this keep going and not step up in this moment, um, then you're just allowing this sort of bad to continue. And so uh, I made a decision to run for lieutenant governor uh, in Texas, which in Texas is a very powerful office, different than other states that people might be familiar with. It's very powerful here. Um, and I'm running as a Democrat um, because I think I believe that right now it's the only vehicle, though I may disagree with other Democrats on some issues. It's the only vehicle I believe right now uh, that supports the sort of constitution and the values uh, that I am a believer in, in this, in the small D democratic principles. So yeah, I'm right in the midst of it. I'm sitting in the, you have a, the Texas flag behind me. I'm sitting in my campaign office in Wimberley, Texas right now. Um, and uh, I'm on my way. Well, I think anybody who knows me knows this is a nonpartisan statement. I really don't spend much time thinking about the parties. I do actively ask, and you don't have to answer this question unless you want to say something about it. 
Just like I look at the core values of my company, The Motley Fool, or the core values of any, let's say, not-for-profit board I'm sitting on, I like to know the core values of our organizations. And we talked earlier, what are the core values of our country? And again, I think that's a beautiful question to ask anyone. The next time you're sitting on a bus without anything to say or an embarrassing moment in an elevator, well, this would actually make it more embarrassing. It's a little too intense. But just asking somebody, you know, what do you think are the core values of our nation? And just having an open conversation where people open up and share. And you're like, well, why do you think that? That's such a much more valuable conversation than some of the ones we've been inveighing against over the course of our hour together. But I'm curious because I have a hard time seeing this today. Do you think that the Democratic Party has core values? And if so, are they truly aligned about them? And could you articulate three to five of them? Or I would say the same to my Republican friends, which I am rhetorically on this podcast. Are you aligned around three to five core values that in our workplaces, so many of us have found so powerful and effective to, to state those and be aligned those? So do you see that in party politics today, true core values that unite parties? Uh, yeah, I do actually. I, I do see that, and 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 it gets it's it's not an issue debate though. Issues are reflective can be reflective of core values, but you could debate issues and policies even under a core value. You can debate them, and the best way to achieve those core values. But I I do see them. I, I think at this point in time, I think you have to really, really, really get to the deepest, most fundamental values uh, in this moment. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think the democratic party right now, they have a lot of debate and a lot of stuff and they're not always perfect and they're flawed at times, but I actually think they believe in some basic core values about an interest in that the idea that democracy is, should be a functional system that we, everybody's per, everybody's vote should count that we believe in the idea of, of, of justice and fairness and all of that. I think there are some core values that, all Democrats agree with, but I, again, I think there's a dispute at times over the practice of them in whatever debate on a policy is. But I do believe, which is why I'm running as a Democrat, they have some core values that I think are very different from what the opposing party is today. And let's leave that right there because it really is not the purpose of this podcast or my personal interest to, to investigate that. But I'm glad we're having the conversation and I'm glad that somebody of your caliber, Matthew, is bringing that to, to the fray. And speaking of the fray, I guess my obvious concluding question <laughs> is, well, you just laid down this strategy book on how to conduct a conscious campaign. And, and I'd say you generously shared your viewpoints and even your ratings on exactly that. So Matthew, Dad, how thoroughly are you planning on putting your stratagems into real practice in the year ahead? So it, great question. I, I mean, I put a lot of thinking this. I'm not a candidate, having been in politics and one done campaigns, I'm not a candidate that's handed something and says, here, read this, or this is what you, this is what you need to say. Everything that I say and do comes from my own gut and my heart. If somebody could go on our website and look at the opening video, I wrote that. I wrote the opening video. That was me. That was me in my own words. There's a statement of what am I statement of why I'm running. I wrote that. Um, I, I came up with I came up with the overall idea of the campaign, which is common sense with common decency for the common good. Mm. Common sense with common decency for the common good. Very much in line with the conversation we just had, right? And I've had the when I've hired people here at the campaign, and my first sit down meeting with them is we I want to conduct a campaign 
that reflects how we're going to govern if we're elected lieutenant governor. We should act and treat and behave as if we're already in the lieutenant governor's office and not tell people we're doing this, but show people we're doing this. It's that old Margaret Thatcher quote that I'll paraphrase, which is it's like being important. It's like being a lady. If you have to tell people you are, you're probably not. Um, and so the whole idea is like <laughs> if, if you're going to be a person of integrity or you're going to be a person that believes these things, show them before you tell them. Yep. And so I'm trying uh, imperfectly. And all of those things, as you went through them all, I was I was thinking to myself, yeah, that's what we want to do. And that's some of the things we've already thought of. Some we could do better. Some we need to reflect more on how we're going to do that. But it has been, speaking of using the word, it has been a conscious thing for me uh, that I don't want to win. Um, I'd rather lose and do it right than win and done it wrong. Beautifully said. And I, I want to thank you again, because I think a lot of people who are actually candidates for political office, and I literally didn't know you were when I invited you to this podcast, and you hadn't announced anything when I did. <laughs> but to think that you you came on the podcast and you didn't insist that I lead off by mentioning in your bio that you're running for lieutenant governor of Texas. I really wanted it to emerge organically, as as was my own lived experience, to see, oh my gosh, this guy said and thought these things, and look what he just did. So it was fun for me to kind of go through that very same sequencing for this podcast, and I'm thankful that you didn't say, hey, please lead with that, and that's why I'm on this podcast, and you know, how many votes, how many people in Texas listen to this podcast? You didn't ask any of those things. I'll conclude by saying, Matthew, down at the heart of this podcast, and of course, in my own heart, we and, and I love rule breakers, people who challenge the status quo, who look at the conventional wisdom and maybe see something better. And usually the greatest, the greatest value is created by people who realize the conventional wisdom was wrong. And in the stock market, when you do that, everybody's going one way and you're buying Amazon in 1997 and you do really, really well over the next 25 years because you were the one who challenged the conventional wisdom. And so I trust and hope that I'm not going to call this a movement that you're starting, but maybe in part it is that conscious politics and conscious campaigning are about to turn and get a lot better in the next 25 years. And whether you win or lose, and I love how you said it, I think that to, to uphold that and to communicate that and teach that, I think a lot of us will be watching you with interest. I sure will. Matthew, thanks for joining us this week on Rule Breaker Investing. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.